You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am here with my amazing co-host, <laughs> Dr. Carrie Vediant from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. How you doing? Lovely. How are you? Good. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey. <laughs> hey, girls. Y'all having a good afternoon today? Yes, absolutely. Good deal. The world has slowed down and it is amazeballs. I know. It's it's nice to slow down after the holiday season and and kind of regroup and regroup. get your head yeah. back on straight. Mm-hmm. So so I feel like the magical questions this time of year, there are two. One is, what is the best gift you have received uh, over the course of the year? And the other one is, what is the worst gift you have received? And so... Over the, the course the of the year or ever? Um, for the purpose of this question ever, because okay. I'm sure that will elicit better responses. Um, <laughs> but what's, what is the most dramatically terrible, uh, gift you have ever gotten? And this can be from anyone for any occasion and be terrible for any, uh, of a dozen reasons of why it's terrible. So I'll, I'll take this one. So I do consider like your birthday cake as part of a gift. Okay. <laughs> and early in my career, I was, I had already been diagnosed with celiac, so I can't eat gluten. And I went to work on my birthday and everybody got me a gluten birthday cake for them all to eat. <laughs> Wait, not gluten-free. Oh gluten no, eaten. they totally knew I could not eat it. And they bought me Aww. a regular birthday cake. Oh, that was, that, that was my worst, that was my worst present ever in my opinion. Like, it's one thing if it's an accident, like, you know, if somebody just like brings me food, like I am more than happy to like pass it on. But like when you know I have celiac and you yeah. bring me a gluten, you can't eat your own cake. cake. I'm like, really? Aww. That was moderately self-serving. Yeah, more than moderately. More yeah. than moderately. What do you got, um, Abby? Well, this isn't really the worst, worst gift ever, but it was in the context. I dated this guy for a while and it, we were kind of, the relationship was starting to run its course after a couple of years. And I knew things were not going well when he got me a blender for my birthday. <laughs> like, okay. But in his defense, he was, it was like he gave me some margarita mix or something. But still, you know, when you're in your 20s and you're dating somebody, a blender is not really what you want for your birthday, you know? <laughs> that is not a romantic gift. Unless, <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless you're maybe a hardcore alcoholic and love margaritas. <laughs> maybe. Um, you love margaritas. Maybe that's a great gift, but yeah. We, um, so I think mine was my then boyfriend, now husband. So you can tell it's not a terrible gift because he's, he's made he survived it. it. He made it. He, yeah. he survived it. 
But I think he got, um, he didn't get me nothing for my birthday, but he got me something really, really minor and small that was very out of character. And because we had been dating at least four, three, four years at that point. And so every prior birthday had been very thoughtful, not necessarily huge. Like he got me, you know, a poster from one of my favorite artists when we were first dating. And like, it was a t- maybe $20 poster, but it was perfect. So nice. it, I forget what it was that he got. It, it was something really minor, like, I don't know, a deck of cards or <laughs> something like carnations <laughs> or something like that. I'm like, really? You would have been better served to say you forgot and you'll make up for it later. Um, but we weren't like expecting a ring or anything at that point, were you? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, and but it was one of those things where he he has never done that since. <laughs> He has never done that since. And he I did not have to a high holy fit. It was just a, uh, really, dude? Yeah. <laughs> this, are you trying to tell me something? Are you breaking up with me on my birthday? No, I'm not that crazy chick. But if I thought about it, I might have gone that route. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was just, it was more lame rather than bad. Yeah, he's just tired and didn't really spend a lot of time to pick your gift out. Yeah, yeah. But I still love him. Well, that's, that's good. good. That's good. We're going to do that. Well, yeah. so th- today we're going to do an episode all about questions about ovarian reserve and usually diminished ovarian reserve. Um, so we're going to kind of start off here with this one. Hi, I'm 32 years old and struggling with secondary infertility, conceived first child, first month of trying. My OBGYN tested my AMH when I expressed concerns about having trouble conceiving. Um... And her AMH came back as 0.56. I started vitamins, prenatal, CoQ10, and vitamin D, and recently retested her AMH, which is now 0.88. Is this an increase that should be expected, or should I be concerned one of the tests is a fluke? We are getting ready for our for IUI, and my RE isn't doing a day three scan or testing FSH. Isn't this something I need to know where my ovarian reserve stands? Or is it normal just to go straight to IUI without diagnostics? I mean, I would say with that AMH, it's kind of like I tell patients, if we check your blood pressure today, tomorrow, and the next day, it's not going to be exactly the same thing. It's going to fluctuate up and down a baseline. And that's what I would kind of say with this. I think whether it's 0.56 or 0.88, I mean, it is abnormal, but you know, it's not horrible and you're 32. And for me, for my patients, it wouldn't really change what I'd recommend at that point. So I don't think there's a reason to keep checking it over and over again, because it's not going to be exactly the same. And whether it fluctuates up a little bit or down a little bit, it's probably not gonna make a difference in terms of um, management. I think I would definitely get the rest of the diagnostics just because two things can coexist at the same time. You can have low ovarian reserve and you can have tubal dysfunction or his sperm count can be low or what have you. And so I would never blow it off because I think all of us probably have at least one patient early in our careers where we made an assumption of, I know exactly what's going on because I have this one test that's abnormal. And then six months into treatment, you run another test and you're like, well, son of a bitch, I missed this from the beginning. And uh, so I would get the diagnostics anyway, because you want to you want to make a plan with a full set of information. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, with diminished ovarian reserve, you need to think about what your long term plan is. And so IUI, if you're wanting to have this one child and, you know, this is baby number two, maybe you're going to be done after that. Um, it's not unreasonable to do diagnostics while you're doing the IUI cycle. There's no reason you can't do that. Um but if, say, you know, we're trying for baby number two and we're wanting baby number three or number four, 
you know, maybe IUI is not the best solution. Maybe you need to be doing IVF to cryopreserve some embryos and then either transfer an embryo or do an IUI cycle after you have enough embryos for you to hopefully, you know, fulfill your family goals later on. So I do think getting the the full workup, there, there are some people out there who are not, you know, just like there's some people who don't test AMH, there's some people who don't test FSH and estradiol. I think the three of us pretty much do both of those and we like to do an antral follicle count. Ovarian reserve testing is not perfect. And so the more things that kind of support a diagnosis, I think the better. And then we can get a, a better idea of the full picture. I would say that because you're 32, don't don't phone it in because you're the type of patient where even if you do have just a couple of follicles, you're the one where we see more potential for success. Like mm-hmm. your REI is going to counsel you very carefully, like, look, this may not work, but they will also probably counsel you, look, this very well may work. And so yeah. there's a little bit more gambling involved. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was I was telling my patients in Vegas, look, I've never spent a dime on a slot machine or any kind of gambling in Vegas because I don't need to because I gamble every day in my job. <laughs> but, but this is where that gambling really comes in. And yes, it's a big step. But when it pays off, it pays off really big. Mm-hmm. And, and you're the type of person at 32 years old who's had a baby before where there's a really decent chance you'll get where yeah. you will be. Absolutely. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Our next question. Hello. I am a 32-year-old physician who was recently diagnosed with premature ovarian insufficiency after not having a cycle for three months following discontinuing OCPs. Karyotype and labs are normal. FSH is 56, AMH 0.03. I have plans to start an IVF cycle despite knowing the low likelihood of success. We are planning to do a delayed start protocol with Ganarelix, Clomid, then Omnitrope and Folistim. Is this the cycle you would recommend or have you seen or have seen be the highest chance of success? I know I'll likely need to pursue egg donation. However, I want to give myself a chance and then move on. Thank you so much. So that protocol is, it sounded like Omnitrope and FSH, but preceded by Clomid. Clomid and Ganarelix or something. Yeah, Ganarelix, Clomid, then Omnitrope and Folistem. That timing doesn't, Granted, it's, little, it's not it's not clearly laid out in the question, but that timing doesn't totally make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, just so our listeners know, Ganarelix is an antagonist. And we usually can we sometimes use Ganarelix in estrogen priming. So it's mm-hmm. possible that that's starting off there. And then yeah. it stopped kind of in the first part of the cycle. And then later on it's restarted to keep you from ovulating. Um the Folistem. Yes. Um, the Clomid, I can say I've started using some oral medications with my injectables and really, really poor prognosis patients because I've I've seen some people have more positive responses and fewer cancellations. Um, I, I would argue, though, that we're getting lost a little bit in the semantics. I think the big picture is her FSH is 56 and her AMH is 0.03. I think it's hard to say that this protocol is better than that protocol when your AMH is low. And, you know, and I know she's an MD too. And, you know, again, not to be negative, but I think there's not a lot. I mean, there's not one protocol that we do that we say, this is the one, you know, sometimes we try one, if it doesn't work, we, we have to cancel the cycle, we'll modify things and do things differently. But, you know, I, I, I don't blame you for wanting to try. If I were in your shoes, I'd want to do the same thing. But mm-hmm. I mean, being really honest, 
probably it's going to be real hard for any protocol to work real well, given the fact that you just have a really low egg count in a, in a high FSH. I mean, I would say probably the most important point of any protocol that you go through is that you have some suppression going into it because you want to lower yeah. your FSH before you start stimming. Because I think if you do that, frankly, even if you don't take any medications with an FSH of 56, it's going to shoot high enough up on its own. And you just need it suppressed so that when it goes up, you know when it goes up and you know when to start monitoring. And so that's that's probably what I would consider one of the most important points of this type of protocol because your FSH, no matter Clomid, gonadotropins, Folistin, whatever, um, your FSH is probably going to take care of itself without the medications. It's can you suppress it beforehand and then remove the suppression so it rebounds and and does does its own thing. Well, and to that end, too, one of the protocols that we used to do probably more frequently five or six years ago was a microdose Lupron flare protocol. And we would put patients on birth control pills for a month or so to do exactly what you're talking about, Carrie, to suppress the FSH. And then um, then you be, you're on a, a microdose um, dose of, of Lupron. It's a real small dose. And since you're a physician, you probably know that, you know, what happens is when you first start Lupron, what happens initially is you have a flare of FSH. And so not only are you flaring on your own because you're coming off birth control pills, but you're also flaring because you're doing that microdose Lupron flare dose as well. And so that's that's another alternative. Again, I don't quite understand exactly what you're doing with the medicines, but but if this doesn't work, that's another alternative. A lot of times I'll, I'll use that as a second choice for some of my patients if um, the first try doesn't work very well. I do love me a Lupron flare. It can work. It can work. I, I think the, the kind of summary here is that in in the situation of tree premature ovarian insufficiency, there's not a magic recipe. Um, there is definitely, yeah. you know, there is an art to art <laughs> to assisted reproductive technologies. And, and so, you know, give it a try. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, know that there's other protocols out there and, and ask your physician, mm-hmm. you know, what other things can be tweaked in, in future protocols if you need to go that way. Well, mm-hmm. the one big positive I would say is that you're 32 and age makes a huge difference. Even if your AMH is yeah. 0.03, it's not that we want 32-year-olds to have an AMH that's 0.03, but if you're 32, you're going to do better than somebody who's 38 or 39 or 40 for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to our next one. Hi, I've been seeing my fertility specialist um, since February and my AMH has gone from 0.18 to 0.085 um, from February to May. As my doctor said that at my age of 34, I'll be 35 in October, that outcomes for IUI and IVF are the same around this age. Is this true? Should I just go to IVF? Um, I'm on my second cycle of IUI currently, and I don't really want to waste time um, as my AMH is dwindling. Any advice would be most helpful. Just to clarify, she said that she was told that IUI and IVF have the same success rate with a low AMH when she's 34 years old. Did I hear that right? No, I think what she's saying is that nothing magical happens on her 35th birthday. Oh, okay. That so makes number more one, sense. IUI and IVF do not have the same success rates. <laughs> yes, they are wildly different, particularly when you are 34 slash 35 well, years old. Okay. If you find a normal egg, a normal embryo, that is. Yeah, that um, that's right. the key. You got to get you got to get to that stage, though. That makes a lot more sense. I was trying to figure out how in anyone in their 30s, IVF and IUI had the same success rate, and right, it makes much I more think sense that it's not an age. That 
is that when you sing happy birthday on your 35th birthday, nothing magical There's not happens. a switch. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it doesn't switch on or off. That, you know, time is very, very important. You should probably be as aggressive as you are comfortable being under the mm-hmm. situation. Um, right. I'm kind of seeing a, a trend when people are, you know, having these multiple AMH levels. AMH is going to very mildly, like Abby mentioned earlier, that the difference between 0.1 and 0.08, it's really not a difference in our book. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a similar number. If it was, you know, 0.8 and 12, that that's hugely different and very mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> implications of much different things. So um I I think Carrie, do you have any uh, other advice for this listener? I mean, I I think one more IUI cycle is not going to make or break anything. If you skip it, if you do it, it's it's not going to make or break anything. The things that tend to be of bigger impact are going to be you getting frustrated, regardless of what you do, and taking six months to a year or longer off. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I what I typically tell my patients is, look, if your insurance covers absolutely everything for IUI and you don't have to pay for anything, great, do another one. If your insurance covers absolutely nothing and you have to pay everything out of pocket, jump to IVF a little bit faster. Um, given a one-shot vote, I think just about every fertility doc, if if they're offered, you can do one more thing. It's going to be IUI or IVF. Every single one of us is going to say, okay, IVF it is. But a lot of it's going to depend on what your bigger picture is. We don't want you to get frustrated. We also don't want you to feel like I, flew, I threw in the towel too early and went straight to IVF. Because IVF is really good, but it's not foolproof. It there's a real possibility that it won't work. And so we want you to be able to feel comfortable with your decision, regardless of the outcome. And so I have I have people who go either way saying, screw it, I'm done with IUIs, take me to IVF. And the other people who are like, let me just do the three. That's the number I had in my mind when I came in. I will feel better. And then we'll go to IVF if it doesn't work. And that's fine too. You know, one more in either direction is not going to make or break anything. Do what allows you to sleep well at night and just do it with the intent of continuing forward with treatment because the the specific path, you know, do you go right or do you go left? Doesn't matter as long as you still keep going. Very good advice. Very good advice. All right. Here's our next one. Hello. I love your podcast. It was a lifesaver for me when I started my journey. Background, AMH a point three. Day three, FSH 15. Some male factor with low morphology. We otherwise are really healthy with normal weights. Failed one IVF cycle, had three eggs, two mature, none made it to day five. My husband and I took a few months off and conceived on their own right oh, now. Wow. <laughs> See, there's a good example. It can exactly. Happen. Exactly. Right now, I'm almost at the 12-week mark, first baby, Aww. first pregnancy. So far, everything is looking good, fingers crossed. My question is, what's the reality that we could conceive naturally again? Should we start trying as soon as possible? If we don't conceive after a few months of trying, should we go for another IVF round? Do we have an age? That's what I was just going to say. How old is she? Um, I don't have an age. I don't age have an age. Age makes a huge difference. I have a 20, she was 22 initially that got pregnant unexpectedly with a really low AMH. And then she came to see me for egg freezing. And um, and then she, she had another baby and still has a really low AMH, but she's really young. So I think that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, one of the stories that has stuck with me ever since I was a first year fellow was that there was a 
physician who was really paranoid about her fertility. She had testing done. She had lost an ovary at an early age and she had testing done and her testing was abysmal. Her AMH was low. Her follicle count was like three and she was freaking out that she was going to need IVF. Well, you know, shortly thereafter, she gets married and she has three children without any problems completely spontaneously. And so there's a degree to which this testing is not entirely helpful and age really does make a huge, Mm -hmm. um, play a huge part in that. So uh, love note to listeners, if you're asking questions, please give us your age because it's really helpful (laughs) advice. Um, You know, I would say if it's important to you, start early, but don't miss out on the joy that you have of a newborn. And if you want to breastfeed, breastfeed. And if you feel like you're losing your mind and your hair and your sanity, Um, while you are in the newborn phase, let it ride. Don't start fertility treatment immediately because it's okay to do one phase of life at a time and it will work out one way or the other. Whatever is supposed to be will happen. Yeah. But on another note, if you're in your late thirties or early forties, I would probably start back pretty quickly because in that situation, it's not as likely that you're going to conceive on your own, particularly with an AMH of 15 right now. It's kind of creeping up there. So, but I agree with Carrie. You don't want to rush the joy of having a baby and breastfeeding and all the fun that comes with that to rush back and try and get pregnant again. Yeah. I, I think also, this is a lot of this is a heart decision. Mm-hmm. And because as much as we say don't rush, um, as as a perpetual rusher, <laughs> 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 that that sometimes doesn't you know work very well and so you know do do what your heart tells you if you want to be as aggressive as you can be be as aggressive as you can be if you are just kind of like uh, we're going to take this baby and and work on the next one you know it it is reasonable to try if you're going to try on your own i would probably try for 3 or 4 months i probably wouldn't try for a year um mm-hmm. if you're going to go down the path of of getting additional help Yeah. All right. Let's do a couple more. Okay. Let's do this one. Love your podcast. Is there such a thing as weak or insufficient ovulation? Like there is a range on how strong ovulation is, or is it that the egg quality is poor or follicle doesn't develop? As background, she's 35, um, DOR with male factor, um, AMH 0.8, FSH 10, AFC 7, sperm 1% morphology. Um, saline tubal perfusion okay, except left side spasmed, endometrial biopsy negative, hysteroscopy normal, tried to conceive for a year, never pregnant, regular 24 to 26 day cycles. Prepping for IVF, um, but doing medical Medicaid cycles with timed intercourse and IUI this next cycle while they're waiting for insurance coverage. Did five days of Clomid and ultrasound showed that ovulation was near, but progesterone was under two on day seven post ovulation. So he said, I didn't ovulate well enough to need an, I didn't ovulate well enough and need an HCG trigger shot. So I'm going to make a plug for future episodes um, (laughs) in that in the first half of January and I think the first half of February, we talk with Dr. Amy Beckley. And um, she is a pharmacist who developed a tracking device, device. mechanism, drug, yeah. not a drug, but a, a tracking device. It's a, a kit that you can buy called yeah. Prove. It's, yeah. and she has a, she has a web or a app, P-R-O-O-V. And so she, so definitely tune into those episodes because she talks about where, where she came from. And it's very much what your question is asking. Yeah. Um, yes, if you have really low progesterone levels, that's not 
that's not super convincing. And you probably are someone who's going to benefit by ovulation induction meds and an HCG trigger and some closer monitoring and those types of things. So I think this is one of those, you know, um, kind of chicken or the egg type of questions. I'm I'm of the philosophy that your diminished ovarian reserve probably is contributing to your ovulatory disorder. And, um, and, And we all see this, you know, we have people who come in with irregular periods and they're, you know, other docs have said, oh, you've got PCOS. And then we do a scan mm-hmm. and we're like, crap, where's your ovaries? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so we we see that, you know, diminished ovarian reserve can lead to an ovulatory disorder. So needing HCG to make everything happen the way it needs to happen is 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 a reasonable, you know, tool in our bag to use. Yeah. So the answer to your question, is there such a thing as weak or insufficient ovulation? The answer is absolutely yes. And there's different ways you can treat it with HCG or progesterone or whatever. Mm-hmm. Good deal. All right. One more. Hi, grateful for your podcast. I'm 38 years old who recently had all the lab work and testing done. AMH 0.01, FSH 4.4 and four follicles. Healthy, no other pathology to note. HSG clear, never conceived. Partner sperm is good. Wondering if trying a cycle of Clomid IUI makes sense before IVF. My doctor says it's okay to do one or two Clomid cycles, then go to IVF because my AMH is already low. Once I undergo IVF cycles, what can I do to maximize each cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is I agree with that. I mean, your your AMH is not going to change dramatically in the next few months. And, you know, a few months of trying... Clomid IUIs, I mean, if you get pregnant that way, like one of our listeners did, I mean, you win the ball game without having to go through IVF. So I don't think three months in the whole scheme of things is a big deal. And I think it would be fine to do that for a few months before you proceed to IVF. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. There are some things that are a little bit trickier to do with IUI and decreased ovarian reserve. You're a little bit more likely to have a follicle developing before we have given it permission to develop. And so there's a mismatch. <laughs> between the size of the follicle and its readiness to ovulate and the preparation of the endometrium. So oftentimes we see someone who's ready to ovulate really early and their endometrium Mm -hmm. is like WTF. I have not gotten dressed for this party yet. Yeah. Um, And so that can be a little trickier with IUIs, but I would agree with Abby. You have nothing to lose by trying. It's a month or two. Do it because if you win, it's the lottery and it's it's a good lottery. It's not like a $5 lottery. Um, <laughs> and give it a shot because if it doesn't work, you're always going to go to IVF and you're already planning, which means you're not going to be spending a lot of time screwing around. And that's really the big thing. That's right. I think very, very true. You know, if you can do it the easy way, that's great. But if not, then there's other options and be, again, you follow, follow your heart. All right, you guys. Well, I think we covered a lot of good stuff today. And to our audience, thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Would love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So make sure to follow and subscribe to stay on updated on all things infertility. You can also visit us on fertility.sensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast for the Ask the Doc section. Um, We love episode ideas, um, so let us know what you want to hear. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. 
pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.